For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Last week, we were warned against being judgmental. And we used this phrase that being right is not the same thing as doing right. Knowing the list of rules inside and out is inferior to actually keeping the rules. And this is going to continue for the rest of this chapter. And these verses continue that as well. And it makes very significant points here about the law and the function of the law and also the conscience, which is fascinating to talk about. And you've got to keep all of this in context. From chapter 1, verse 18, down to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is working to establish guilt. He's giving the bad news before we get to the good news. And at the end of today, he's going to remind us that there's a coming judgment before Christ. And I hope that as Paul reminds us of the importance of actually keeping the law, not just knowing the law, that we'll be compelled to to sin less (laughs) and to be more obedient to the Lord. Because it's not enough to know all the rules. You've You've got to keep the rules. You've got to keep the law, not just know the law. So let's look at this again a little slower, starting with the first two verses. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, Paul is stacking that word for again, which is gar in Greek. It's an explanatory word. And we're looking back here saying for what? For the fact that we read in verse 11, God shows no partiality. Paul has just made to a Jew some alarming statements about Greeks. He said that there will be joy and glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. You can imagine them sitting up a little bit and say, wait, what? It's all equal before God? There's no partiality? And Paul says, yes, for, and he begins to explain himself. And it's pretty straightforward. Whether you have the law or not, your sin is going to be punished. And for this context, this is important to note, and in fact, pretty much every place in the Bible you see the word law, you ought to consider it capitalized. This is not just talking about any law. This is talking specifically about the law of Moses, what God gave to Moses and the Israelites at Sinai and in the wilderness. And it, of course, can be applied many different ways, but it's, it's not just talking about legalism. It's talking about the law that God gave to Moses. And in verse 13, he lays out a very biblical principle that we see in a lot of places. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament love to make that contrast between the hearers and the doers. And that it is the hearers of the law who will be acceptable before God. 
These are very significant words, especially that word here. There's two Old Testament verses I'm going to read here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is the beginning of the famous Shema. This is the confession that all the Israelites would make. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word, hear, is a very significant word for the Israelites. So to be a Jew and to hear the law is right in line with what it says. Moses is beginning in Deuteronomy to remind them of all the law that God had given them. So that's to be a hearer of the law is a good thing. But within the law, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which is what Paul is alluding to in these verses in Romans, he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's being a doer of the law. If you do them, you will live by them. So Deuteronomy 6, we have a call to hear the law. But Leviticus 18 reminds us that you also have to do the law in order to live by the law. The Jews in Rome that Paul's writing to here seem to think that hearing was enough. That if you had heard the law, that that was enough. But if they actually had heard the law, they would have known that they needed to do the law in order to live. This is something that Jesus very often said to the people that he spoke to. It's not enough for you to know it, you've got to do it. He would call out the Pharisees and the scribes, like, you know the law and you teach the law, but look at the way you're living and the way you're acting and the way you treat your parents and the way you treat your disciples. And these following verses down after today's will get into specific examples, but I, I think we can understand the idea here. Being a doer versus a hearer. You cannot just say, hey, I, I went to synagogue, I went to Sunday school, I know what the Bible says. But if you haven't done any of it, that's not any good for you. But what is so remarkable here is that Paul is applying this doing and hearing business not just to the Jews, but to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. This would have been offensive and, and maybe even felt blasphemous to these, these people because they were still focused on status as the standard of judgment before God. Do you have the law? Are you a hearer of the law, O Israel? Are you one of us? That's what's going to matter on Judgment Day, not whether you've done the law or not. But Paul has been laying out in last week and in this week that if you sin without the law, you'll perish without the law. And if you sin under the law, you'll be judged by the law. He's applying the same standard of judgment to Jews and Gentiles, which would have been scandalous to these Jews to hear. And probably surprising for the Gentiles, too. They focused on status as the standard of judgment. Everybody's always looking for a leg up morally. Have you noticed that? Everybody's always trying to find something about themselves that'll lift them a little higher than everybody else, which means I don't have to do all the same things as everybody else. I'll give you an example we all can get behind. Very often we look at politicians who champion for this law or that law or this thing and then we find out they've been doing these horrible things behind the scenes. They've been, whether they're having a bunch of affairs or committing all kinds of financial corruption. And we're like, how could you do that? And they say, well, wait a minute. I passed all these laws that you liked. And we go, yeah, but that, that just makes you a hypocrite. That doesn't make you a good person. That's because you're up here. It doesn't mean that you get to ignore all the things that the rest of us have to do. And this is what was going on here. We're Jews. We have a leg up. In fact, in church history, it flipped. Where the people were saying, if you're a Jew, you're at a disadvantage to be saved. 
And it's really about being a Gentile. And, and depending on what culture you're part of, your culture always seems to somehow have a, a leg up biblically. If you're in the Russian Orthodox Church, being a Russian just puts you a little closer to God. You know, if you're, if you're a Roman, oh, Rome just makes you a little closer to God. If you're an American, oh, we taught this for a long time to our own shame. Well, this is God's new promised land, and we're God's new chosen people. Therefore, we can do whatever we want, and it's okay that we're doing all this rotten stuff. And today you see it from the woke folks. Depending on how oppressed you've been or how bad your life is, well, you've got a, a higher moral standing than somebody else. There was a guy that came to a pastor's meeting I was at years ago, and he said, well, I think we all know that oppressed people just have a, they have a prophetic voice that God gives them. And I was like, I don't think you know what a prophetic voice is. But he goes on to explain what this means is, you know, if you're, if you're black, for example, and you've, you're, people have been oppressed, you, you're automatically higher morally than a white person whose folks did the oppressing. Or you can apply this across. If you're a woman, you're higher than a man because women have been oppressed. Or if you're gay or whatever it is. And we hear that and, and we chafe against that. Like, that's not right. You don't get just to be a certain kind of person. Therefore, you're more moral automatically. But we all do it. God is too fair and too impartial for that. He's even here telling his chosen people, don't think that just because you're a son of Abraham. What did John the Baptist say? God could make that rock into a son of Abraham. So don't think that that gives you an advantage. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, verse 17 through 20, the Lord said, you people say the way of the Lord is not just. They've been exiled. God's not fair. It isn't fair that he did this. He says, but it's your own way that is not just. Hear this now. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. That's a, a very important passage, I think. It's not fair that God brought all this stuff on us. And God's like, what unfair? If you're being a good person, but you turn around and you, you start doing all this wicked stuff, you're going to get punished for that. But it doesn't matter if you're a wicked, evil person. If you turn around and repent and come to me, I'm going to forgive you. So don't come to me and say I'm not just. I'm going to judge you based on you. And the Jews might have heard that and not even considered that this applied to Gentiles too. And this can be hard for us to face for ourselves, that you don't have a moral advantage before God. God is impartial. I want God to be fair. How oh, do you? Are you sure about that? So from these verses, we ought to gather, obviously, it is incumbent upon every one of us as Christians to actually do the word of God. Yes, we are saved by grace, but don't let that trip you into falling into the same sin that Israel was committing here. Well, we're in, been baptized, we're born again, we go to church, therefore we can do whatever we want. No, the exact opposite of that is true. In fact, James would use the same language in James 1, 22 through 25. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Can you see how Paul and James are not at odds with one another, but they're actually teaching the exact same message? He says, if you're a hearer only, you are deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, 
He will be blessed in his doing. If you are a hearer of the word and not a doer, he says, you're deceiving yourself. I listen to preaching all day, every long, all day long, every day. And he says, are you, are you doing it? Well, I'm listening to it. James goes, you're, you're fooling yourself by thinking that's enough. He says, he's like, you're looking in the mirror and you forget your face. This is maybe something that the gentlemen can relate to more than the ladies because y'all are so wonderful. But, you know, gentlemen, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you ever just go, oh, what is that? You try for a second to fix the hair or maybe there's something on your face and you're like, yeah, you know what, and you, just, you leave Amen. and off you go. And there it is all day long and you get home and your wife goes, what is going on with your hair today, you know? It's, it's like that. This is the example he's using. You look into the mirror, the law that shows you what you're really like, but then you walk away and don't do anything about it. Well, what good did looking in the mirror do you? Amen. It's like going to the doctor and he tells you you've got this problem and that problem. And here's what you've got to do. And you go home and you don't do any of it. Well, I went to the doctor. We didn't take your medicine. <laughs> so what good did it do you? It's not enough to know sexual immorality is wrong. You've got to be pure sexually. It's not enough to know that cursing is wrong. You must not curse. It's not enough to know that bitterness is wrong. You've got to forgive the people who have hurt you. Amen. Well, Jesus made it easier. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. I say that if you get angry at somebody without a cause, it's the same thing. It's more intense with Jesus. So you ought to know that being a Christian does not excuse you from righteous living. It ought to motivate your righteous living, right? Being doers of the word, not hearers only. This is why Paul can say a Greek can receive glory and honor and peace. I said, hold on, that, that can't be true. He goes, no, 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 you know what the Bible says. You must be a doer, not a hearer only. Not just Deuteronomy 6, but Leviticus 18 as well. Just like Jesus said, the foolish man builds his house on the sand. He hears my words and doesn't do anything with it. But the wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? He hears the words and does something about it. Verses 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So another four here. We've already had two today. Says God shows no partiality. What are you talking about? Well, it doesn't matter. If you sin, you're going to be judged. But I have the law. He says, well, you can't just be here. You've got to be a doer. Well, here's the question that that four is answering. How can a Gentile keep the law? They don't even have the law. Don't just think of maybe somebody living in Israel who was familiar with the temple and the ways. I mean, consider a Cherokee at this time of history. They've never heard of the law, and they wouldn't for a very long time. What about all the barbarian tribes, all the folks that were living up beyond Hadrian's Wall, or all the aborigines living down in Australia? They hadn't heard the law. So how, they're, they're saying, Paul, how can you say they kept the law, they don't even have the law? It's an important question. Because the law is not just something to be dismissed. Israel received the law from God himself at Mount Sinai, while the mountain was full of fire and smoke and thunders and lightnings and voices coming out of the flame. And Moses comes down with the law from God. And it was God's righteousness revealed. So what about the rest of the world? What's their standard? If they don't know that, that's not fair. How could they possibly keep it? And we might add, how is it fair to judge them by it if they've never heard of it? 
Well, this is where Paul brings in the concept of conscience, which is the Greek word sunedesis. You only see this in the New Testament because the conscience was a Greek concept for the most part. We are familiar with what a conscience is. We think of Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, right, telling you what's right and wrong. But this was the really a very Stoic idea with a capital S, the, philosoph- the philosophical school of being a Stoic, that the conscience was the inner accusation when you've done something wrong. That's what the conscience is. So it's a very useful concept. It's also understandable to us. The conscience. He says, by nature, they keep the law. This is not so much the rituals. Right? This is not keeping the tassels on your robe. This is not knowing how to offer a proper burnt offering. But things like, honor your father and your mother. Shall not lie. You shall not murder. Things like that. Look at what he says. What's written on their heart? Verse 15, the work of the law. It's singular which is significant. The works of the law are the things the law tell you to do. The work of the law is what the law was set out to accomplish, which is to be a standard of righteousness. And Paul is saying that there are some Gentiles, even though they never heard of Moses, they keep a lot of the things that Moses said to keep because God has put that on their heart. This is a very honest biblical observation that there are what you might call good people outside of the church. God did not abandon the other nations when he chose Israel. God chose Israel to be a nation of kingdoms and priests. But God would even send prophets out of Israel to go and preach to the other nations. Jonah didn't want to do that, right? God said, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Nazis and offer them repentance. Uh, I don't think so. I'm getting on a boat. I'm getting out of here. There were other prophets that went to other parts of the world. There were people that would go in the synagogues and bring proselytes from the other nations. God didn't abandon them. He left them the Spirit's testimony. The Holy Spirit was still at work in the world. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, we've read this verse before because it's an important one, says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So he says, God has put eternity in our hearts so that we know some things about God. He says, so that we cannot find out everything, meaning you don't know everything in your heart, but you know some things, some important things. This is very similar to what we just read in chapter 1, right? That God has manifested himself to the world so that they are without excuse. So there are those that are receiving the testimony of God. This would have been very difficult for a Jewish audience to hear. You're telling me that some lawless Gentile can know God? And you might say, first of all, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. (laughs) We want them all to know God. God has shown himself to them. And this is an important lesson for us to hear. Not every person you meet has utterly silenced the voice of God in their heart. No one has done enough to be saved, but that doesn't mean that everybody is Jack the Ripper, (laughs) And this is an important thing. So the, one of the five Calvinist points is total depravity of man. So we're not a Calvinist church, but that doesn't mean that Calvinists can't be right about a lot of things, right? So when we say total depravity, if you are saying that we cannot save ourselves, oh yes, absolutely. There's nobody that is good enough to save yourself. But if you're going to mean total depravity to mean there is not a single lick of anything admirable or redeemable in other people, well, that's, I don't think that's quite biblical. I also think that's not what most Calvinists mean when they say that. But it's just important because this is the thing we hear. So, oh, they're just all, they're all wicked, they're all terrible, they're all going to hell. Well, yes, they're all going to hell. But 
Paul comes it right out here and says, there are those that they don't keep the law, but it's almost like, have you heard of Moses? Because I'm looking at how you're living and there's a lot to be admired there. C.S. Lewis made this point a lot in the book Mere Christianity. He capitalizes it and he talks about the ought that we all have. Like a kid will say, you ought to do that or you ought not to do that. Because where does that come from? Because it's everywhere, all over the world. People have an ought in their heart. There's a moral law and he uses it as, as an evangelistic tool. And you might say, well, people around the world have different opinions of what's right and wrong. That's true, but he'll say, the world might not agree on how many wives you're allowed to have, but they all can agree you can't just have any woman you want any time. He goes, well, why not? Because there's something in us that is testifying to that. Nations have justice. We can look at other nations and other cultures and look at the way that they set up their laws. And we're like, you know what? We could use some of that over here. They have familial love. Most cultures, they, they value their mother and their father and their children. They value peace. Even warlike cultures value peace. And I, what I want to say here as your pastor is we lose nothing by admitting this. Looking at another person or another culture, even if they're not a Christian and saying there's something admirable about that, that's not wrong to do that. Even the early church fathers would make us kind of uncomfortable because they would talk about some of these pre-Christian philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And they'll say things like, now they didn't know Jesus, but they sure knew a lot of the things the Bible talked about. Plato, for example, came to the conclusion that if there's God, there's only one. It's like, well, where did that come from? That was the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And they would go so far as to say, if God in his mercies is going to show grace to people that got close, we might see some of those people in heaven. I'm not going to go that far, but I'm making the point that there is a history of the church of being able to recognize good and righteousness wherever it is. For example, if you've ever read uh, The Divine Comedy by Dante, right? Dante's Inferno is the first part of it. The first level of hell is, is not so bad. It's more like separation from God, but you're not being tormented all the time. And in there, he has guys like Socrates and Plato and some of these folks that have gone before. I, again, wouldn't go that far, but I will say there's something to be said for the world gets some things sometimes. And those are your open doors to share the gospel with people. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, it says that Solomon gathered wisdom from all over the world, including places like Egypt. Like, oh, you can't do that. Well, God did. <laughs> because wisdom is wisdom. And the Lord's like, you know what? That's pretty great. Why don't you include that in my Bible? Paul quoted from poets in some of his writings especially when he's talking about Cretans. Remember that they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The Lord's like, you know what? That's right. Put that in there. And Jude quoted from the Pseudepigrapha. He quotes from the book of Enoch, which is not in the canon of Scripture. The whole point I'm trying to make here and that Paul is trying to make is that just because it has not got a, a Christian fish stamped on it doesn't mean there's nothing redeemable about it. And we can get really legalistic about this, which is why I'm trying to bring this up. So I know some things that call themselves Christian but are more carnal than some of the things in the world that are, you might use the word noble. We can benefit from things like that. Sometimes you see a, a movie that's not, it's not a Christian movie, but there's something in it that just stirs your spirit. And you're like, yes, that's right. I should be doing that. Or you hear a song that's not a worship song, but it's like, yeah, there's, there's truth in this. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. We ought to expect that. Every once in a while, a little glimmer of light comes through. Because in John 16, Jesus said this, 
When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What is Paul doing here by talking about this? Like, what, why do you have to say that, Paul? You're probably thinking, here, Tyler, why do you got to say that? I don't, I, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this. He's trying to shame these arrogant Jews who thought they were golden just because they were Jews. He's pointing out, look at those Gentiles. Some of them are more righteous than you. And they clutch their pearls. Oh, how dare you say that? He's like, because it's the doers of the law, not the hearers of the law. They don't even have the law. He goes, but they've got a conscience and God gave them that. I wonder if you have a conscience, even though you've got the law. Look at how you're living. It's the same thing for us. It should shame us to know that there are men and women outside of the faith who seem to understand God's general revelation more than we understand his special revelation. They're better to their kids. They're more respectful. They're wiser with their finances than we are. Jesus even told the story of the shrewd steward. You remember this one? The steward who knew he was going to get fired. So what he did was he went around behind his master's back to make sure that his master couldn't get rid of him. And if he did, he was going to be the one that got paid. And you're like, Jesus, how are you going to tell a story like that? He says, because if people in the world can be that crafty and thoughtful about their sin, can't you give a little bit of that towards the gospel and towards righteousness? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The world pushed real hard in the previous century for free love, free sex. You should be able to do whatever you want, right? And the church was there ringing the bell saying, this is a terrible idea. You can't do that. And the world said, we're not listening to you people anymore. So you all know what happened. The divorce rate skyrocketed. People started to feel cheap by this. And then a few years later, not too long ago, some people who are by no stretch of the imagination Christians started to come in and say, it is degrading to women to have free love and free sex like this. What you need is very strong, affirmative consent before you're going to have sex. In fact, you know what? You probably shouldn't even be doing that unless you're going to be committed to a single person. We're like, hmm. How about that? And then they start to come out and say, these magazines in the grocery store are lurid and graphic and shouldn't be shown. It's degrading. Get rid of those. Those commercials on TV, they shouldn't be allowed because it's, it's, it's exposing these people and it shouldn't be done. And we're sitting here like, hello? <laughs> We've been saying this for how long? But they reject the truth of the, of the word. They try their own way for a while and they immediately realize this doesn't work. And they start like reinventing marriage and reinventing modesty. And, and all these things, that is a testimony that the Holy Spirit works in people. He's put a conscience in folks. Even if they don't want to acknowledge Jesus, there's some things that they just can't understand why it just doesn't sit right with them. Because that's their conscience at work. So then there is no excuse for the Christian who wants to act just like the world. How do you think you will escape if you neglect God's law? Well, there are some unbelievers that keep God's law, even though they've never even read it before. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Because you are my chosen people, I'm going to destroy you. Isn't that like backwards? Like, wait, 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 no. You shouldn't destroy us because we're your chosen people. God goes, you should know better. That's the point, isn't it? That's the point for us, too. Even folks in the world know they're wrong and they strive to do right. What about you? You have God's word in front of you. You know what is right. You don't have to wonder. It's right there. So what are we doing with that information? 
verse 16 now. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Sort of an odd transition from verse 15 to verse 16. You go, wait a minute, we were talking about right now, and then all of a sudden we're talking about the end of the world. How did we get here? Well, the point that he's making is, if current trends continue, this is what's going to happen when you stand before Jesus Christ. The point he's saying is that not every person is going to be judged according to the law of Moses per se, right? God's not going to hold up the Ten Commandments and say, did you keep these? No, again, there's some folks that live in the jungle, but I've, I've never even seen that. What is that? But the work of the law that is written on their heart will be evaluated. That internal witness, I think this is a fascinating fact to consider. And there's an important evangelistic point here, too. Because while Paul has been establishing the principle here of what is acceptable before God, he's been saying nobody gets a leg up, everybody knows enough to be judged, and just having the law is not enough because the conscience can serve the same function as the law. But we know where we're going with this. In chapter 3, he's going to lay down the hammer that nobody keeps the law, any law, whether it's the law of Moses whether it's your own conscience, whether it's the civil code that we live by, whether it's something you've agreed to with your family, vows you've made. Leviticus 18.5 told us it is the doer of the law who will be justified, whether that's Moses' law or any other law. And as Galatians 3.10 tells us, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is an important New Testament point that Paul makes. He says it's not enough to do part of the law and miss part of it. He says if you, if you mess up in one spot, it's like messing the whole thing up. So if we're going to say that the conscience serves the same function as the law, the conscience is going to be held to the same standard as the law. And if you fall in one point of your conscience, it's the same thing as violating all of it. Whatever you acknowledge as a law for yourself will be your judge on that day. And if you do not keep it, you will not live by it. The point is that God will judge people by their own rules and they will still be found guilty. That doesn't seem right. If you can make up your own rules, can't you just adjust it? Oh, come on. Consider yourself. You can't keep your own rules. How many times have you said, we're never doing that again? How many times have you done something wicked or wrong and you wake up the next morning and you go, what is wrong with me? I don't even like that. I don't, want, I don't think that's right. Sometimes as Christians, we can get this wrong. We come to the world like they know. They don't know that it's wrong, right? Don't you know that this is wrong? And in some cases, that's true. But in many cases, they know it's wrong and they do it anyway. And they don't want to keep doing it. You don't got to convince them that it's wrong. I used to tell my counselors this in the youth ministry. I'd say, if a kid comes to you brokenhearted over something he's doing, don't waste time explaining to him why what he did is wrong. He gets that. We pontificate about everything that's wrong with the world. The most ironic one is when you see people online ranting and raving about how there's no civility in the United States of America anymore. Isn't that hilarious that we do that? All these people ruining my country, and we're not nice and civil to each other anymore. I can't stand I hope you all die in a hurricane. It's like, hold on a second. You just said, well, it's different because we've got to stand up to these people. It's like, well, wait a minute, but you're, in so doing, you're committing the same sin they're si committing. Yeah, but I know what's right, so it's okay. Oh, we're right back. Are you a doer of the law or a hearer of the law? 
We can't even hold down a diet for two weeks. Come on. Amen. Right? You, you hold up like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to live. We, we find some, maybe some book that's really inspiring. I'm going to do what this says. I'm going to get my life on track. And we don't do it. Maybe you do some of it, but you don't do all of it. That is the whole point. In the end, it doesn't matter what your standard is. Because the function of the standard is to show you, you can't keep the standard. That's the whole point. God holds up the law for a lot of reasons. But for one important one is to say, here's ten rules, don't break them. Well, I do some of them okay. But every now and then I break it. Okay, well I don't like, those rules are too hard. Okay, what are your rules? And then we'll check on you in a year and see if you've kept them perfectly. We've got to help bring the lost to this place and help them realize that. Well, I don't believe the Bible. I don't agree with the Bible's rules. What are your rules? What do you think is right? Let them tell you. And then say, well, have you done all that? Well, I try, but have you done it perfectly? No. Then isn't that demonstrating that you have corruption in your heart too? That's what all this is. Jesus is, or Paul here, is trying to demonstrate that we're all full of sin. And like, well, I don't believe that. And God goes, fine, then go without lying for the rest of your life. Don't ever disrespect your mother or father again. Uh, okay, well, that seems a little stringent. Why? Well, no one can keep that. Bingo. Doesn't matter if it's your standard or anybody else's standard. We're all going to face Christ Jesus who is going to judge the secrets of men. Do you see that? Underline it. The secrets of men. The ultimate fairness. Well, you just don't know what I'm really like. And that's why you're ju- you don't know what I'm really like. Well, guess what? Jesus knows what you're really like. And that's what he's going to judge on that day. And for some of us, that's very relieving. Like, good. God knows what I'm really like. He's seen some of the things that I've done that nobody else noticed or appreciated. For some of us, we go, oh, no. Nobody else thinks I'm great, but I know what goes on when nobody's watching, and that's what's going to be judged. The gospel changed everything. Acts 17.30, Paul said, The former times of ignorance God overlooked. It was before Jesus came, God knew that y'all were desperate in your sins, so he was patient. He allowed some of this stuff to continue. But now, he commands everyone everywhere to repent Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world by Christ Jesus. And he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. After the resurrection, the Lord's like, okay, now you need to repent. You've got to get this right. Jesus is the judge who's going to judge the world. Turn with me to John chapter 5, will you? I want to read this. Jesus himself talked about him being the judge. And he also talked about what the standard of judgment will be on that day. And in so doing, we're going to get ahead of Paul in his argument. But that's okay. I'm not worried about spoiling the ending. You guys know how it goes. John 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 22. I'm going to go through verse 28. Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What do we learn from this? Here's a couple things. Jesus is the judge. It's not going to be, well, God will judge us all and it doesn't matter what your religion was. Jesus Christ of Nazareth will be the judge on the final day. Number two, he says, I will grant life to those who honor me. He says that you will pass out of judgment. That there's a way to escape the judgment you deserve. Well, how do we do that? He said, you honor me by hearing my word and believing on the one who sent me. He says, by believing in me, by receiving what I'm about to do on the cross. And the fourth point here, no one escapes that judgment. Well, I just don't think I'm going to show up that day. He's going to call you out of the grave to resurrection. And the book of Revelation will talk about the second death that some will encounter. What does that tell us? That Jesus is the judge and that through him, God has simplified the judgment And there's only one question remaining. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Because none of our works are good enough to meet the standard. So what have you done with Jesus Christ? God opened up an opportunity for forgiveness. Did you take it? Well, no. Okay, then let's take a look at your works and see how they measure up. Remember we talked about in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, books and book. The books are the works that you've done in your life, and the book is the book of life. You can either have your name written in the book of life by throwing yourself at Jesus' feet and saying, Lord, show me mercy. Or you can stand before God and try to play the let's balance my good and evil and see how it all pans out game. It's not going to work for you. But even then, my name's been written in the Lamb's book of life. You still must be a doer, not just a hearer of the words. If you're only a hearer and you don't do anything, you demonstrate that this is not real for you. You can't judge me like that. Well, the Bible can. Remember the whole point of these verses in Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul is establishing guilt. Your status will not save you. Whatever your status is. I'm oppressed, therefore I'm more moral. I'm a Jew, therefore I'm more moral. I'm an American, whatever it is. Only obedience will save you. Samuel told Saul, To obey is better than sacrifice. And even if you don't know God's law, He'll judge you by your own conscience. Well, my conscience is always telling me I did the wrong thing. Exactly. That's the function of a conscience. To establish your guilt before God. Now, anybody that hears that and goes, Well, my conscience is clean. I feel all right. I don't think I've done so bad. Here's something else. The Bible tells us that our consciences can be seared. You know what it means to sear something? You you can even hear the sound. Like putting a hot iron on something. 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 talks about that. That your conscience can be so numb to the things you've done. You've burned it so many times you don't even feel it anymore. There comes a certain point in certain diseases and injuries that if you stop feeling pain, you ought to worry. Because it means stuff is starting to die. Like when you are getting frostbite or something like that. When your foot or whatever starts to hurt again, you're like, oh, good. Blood's starting to flow again. I'm alive now. 
It's not dead. You can't even trust your own self-evaluation. You are well and truly corrupt. Well, everybody is. Yeah, that's Romans chapter 3. We'll get there in a few weeks. The Holy Spirit shows us against the law of Moses that we are sinners. Or he causes your conscience to cry out against you. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. It said they were cut to the heart. Their conscience was just laid open. And they said, what shall we do? Well, Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. Come, turn from all that, throw yourself at Jesus' feet and say, God, the only thing that can save me is Jesus, so let Jesus count for me. That seems really simple. It is, because you know why? You couldn't do anything else. Well, I, I want some rules. We've already Rules don't work for us. Rules only show to show us that we can't keep rules. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is such an important verse. It says, baptism. There's no, no physical transformation that takes place. Not the removal of the, the dirt from the body. It's, it's not like... Okay, good. Now that I've been dunked under this water, this magic water, I'm saved. He says, what is baptism? It's identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, crying out for a clean conscience. That's what, isn't that a great description of what salvation is? God, my conscience accuses me day and night. I'm begging you, please give me a clean conscience. Let me know that I've been forgiven by these things. But the only way to do that is to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. And here's the good news. God is ready to forgive anybody who is willing to face that truth about themselves. You know, being buried with him in the likeness of his death through baptism, right, is an identification with the death of Jesus. I deserve death. Are you willing to face that? Because if you are, the Lord is ready to forgive you. Doesn't matter what the standard is, whether it's the ancient law of Moses, whether it's our modern 21st century codes of what is and is not right, you're guilty. And isn't the world finding this out? The world makes these new rules, what is and is not okay, but they don't provide any way for forgiveness and grace. So you get these, these cancel mobs that run through the internet. And they're starting to realize, wait a minute, everybody can be caught at any time for any reason. Because you've set up a brand new standard, and like it says in Romans 2, nobody can meet it. But there's no grace. It's only justice. That's why God's gospel is so much better. Says, yes, you are wrong. And you know what? It's worse than you think. It's even worse than you think. But God provides forgiveness and grace. And when you receive that salvation, your heart will be so glad that you will willingly take the yoke upon yourself. All right, you know what, Jesus? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. My, one of my favorite stories, there was a guy at our old church who got saved, and he had been a pot dealer and everything else. And he comes in, he was talking to the pastor, and he said, okay, I'm, I'm all in. What do I got to do? And so they're just running through some things. Now, what about tithing? I don't know anything about tithing, but I've heard of that. What is it? And very kindly, our pastor is trying to be like, well, look, we don't want to push the money thing on you. The Bible talks about being a cheerful giver. And the guy just waved his hand and said, stop. Just tell me what I got to do. I love that. 
Because he was all in. He's like, I I'm, not, I'm not keeping back any kind of selfish stuff anymore. Just tell me what to do. That's repentance. And you'll be striving for righteousness in truth and in grace. And since there's no condemnation, you're like, then I'm willing to try. I'll be happy to try going on trapeze as long as there's a net underneath. But you take away that net, I'm not so sure about that. That's what grace is. Lord, I can't, keep, I can't do four backflips. I can't keep this law. The Lord's like, why don't you just get up there and try? I got a net called grace. You'll get better. Every time you do it, you'll get a little better. It's called sanctification. So for all of us who look at the world and we turn up our noses, first look at yourself because your status doesn't matter. And secondly, realize that the world is not bereft of the knowledge of God and his truth. And those are your entry points to evangelism. Very often I'll be talking about the Lord with somebody who's not a believer and I'll tell a story from the Bible or I'll just make a point and they say, yeah, that reminds me of that movie or that book. And, and like the wrong thing to do would be say, you shouldn't be watching movies because it's like, you know what? That's, that's actually really close. You're right. That, this is what the Bible says. Why do you think that stirs your heart so much? Why do you think that that's wrong? Why do you think you get so outraged by that? Well, I don't know. And you say, I'll tell you why. Because God has put his truth on your heart. And the Holy Spirit is calling out to you. And the soul of men that we pour into our art and our music and everything else, it, it comes out because we know this ought to be true. Our standard is Christ, and none of us can meet that standard. But here's the good news. He's also your refuge and your hope. So don't let your pride puff you up over other people. Just cling to Christ in joy and humility and let it drive you to take that same good news to other people that are wandering in the dark. They've got a feel of where they're going, but they don't realize that not only can they never meet the standard, but they don't have to because of what Jesus Christ has done.